invite you to turn to uh, Romans chapter 13. Hopefully today we're going to come through and finish up Romans chapter 13. And it's been a great chapter of dealing with the relationship to our government. You'll also remember I told you last time um, that the last section of chapter 13, it's a section we're in right now, uh, it starts with about a verse 11 and then comes down to the end of the chapter. It not only closes out the chapter 13 itself, but it forms a bridge to probably the two most important chapters uh, in the Bible on, on our relationship to each other. You remember now that the book of Romans is a definitive book. It basically uh, is written by Paul. It follows after the book of Acts, after the four Gospels, but before Paul starts to address the churches. And the book of Romans is a book that basically defines everything that you and I are to believe as a New Testament Christian. It gives us the insight into everything that we're to really focus on as a child of God. We want to remember that. And, um, you know, when we get into chapter 14 and 15, uh, we're into probably, as I said, the two greatest chapters that really shows us our relationship to other Christians, each other. Every chapter, or in some cases, series of chapters, have been built around our relationship to something. We just finished our relationship to our government. And uh, I'm going to begin reading here in chapter 13. We'll pick it up in verse 11, even though we've already been through 11. But just to put it in a context, we'll read these last verses down through here. And here's what it says. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting nor drunkenness nor in chambering or wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us and all that you've given us. We pray, Father, today as we come to your word that you'll help us grasp the great truths that will, Father, take these things and lay it out in our hearts and give us, Father, the things that you'd have us to see. This has truly been a great chapter, as all the chapters in Romans have been. And we're coming down to the end now. And, Lord, in these last two chapters, in the next couple of months, we'll have the complete understanding of how God looks at the church age and the doctrines and the aspects and the concepts that we are to believe uh, just about on everything in our world today that we're to follow and understand. Help us, Father, today. Help us to glean from these last few verses all that you have for us. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, last week we looked at uh, verse 11 and basically the first part of verse 12. And you'll remember that I gave you, uh, Paul admonished us as God's people in five areas, five different concepts. The first thing he said to us is we are to know the time. And he talked about knowing the time. We talked about how that relates to you and me today, living in America, understanding where we're at in relationship to Christ's coming. He also talked about the second aspect was that it's high time to awake out of sleep. We talked about how that the mark of the Laodicean church period, the church period that you and I are part of, the church period that you, this church is in, how that God's people have went to sleep on the issues that are so important and vital to God. 
Then the third thing we looked at, he talked about our salvation is nearer than when we got saved. And we talked about that, how, how that looked confusing, but it really wasn't. He's simply saying, and we already know now, that when you got saved, your soul was saved. Uh, but when uh, Christ comes back, you get your glorified body. And we're talking about that's the salvation. What he's saying here is this. That every day that you and I are alive, we are one day closer to meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to have our perspective, our passion, and our purpose in line with what Christ told us to do. Then he went on to say that the night is far spent. And I showed you how that in the Bible, nighttime will always be the picture of the church age. Then he talked about the fact that the day is at hand. We define that day as the day of Christ. Two days in your Bible. The day of the Lord will always be a reference to the second coming of Christ when God come to the nation of Israel. The day of Christ will always be a reference to Christ coming for you and for me in the rapture of the church. And we looked at those. Now, maybe some of you have picked up on this. Some of you sharper people probably would. It's been around in the Bible for a while. The underlying concept. I had somebody ask me uh, last week uh, after the sermon, and it was a very good question, and, they a- and I didn't really answer them, so I'll, I thought I, I knew I was going to answer it today. They asked me, why would God, why would Paul, why would God have Paul when he writes Romans chapter 13, which very clearly is in relationship to our government, put the last section, the last four or five verses in relationship to the second coming of Christ and the Lord coming for you and for me. And of course, you now may be able to understand better and put it all together is that the greatest indicator, one of the greatest indicators for you and me as a New Testament Christian, one of the greatest indicators that we know that the day is at hand, that we need to wake up and we need to know the time that our salvation is nearer than it was when we got saved, is to look at our own government. Our government is the blueprint for uh, everything that's going to happen in the next four or five years uh, if it takes that long. Remember now the great book of Zechariah, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2 when it deals with the Antichrist and all of the, all of the things that are going to take place, it simply says this in verse 2, I believe it is, of Zechariah chapter 14. It says, And all nations, all nations were gathered against the Lord. Our own nation is going to turn against God. It already has, but in the sense of totally and completely. In the next four or five years, you're going to see this nation turn its back on the nation of Israel. You're already seeing the signs of it with Miss Hillary Clinton over there uh, making, uh, making overtones with the, uh, with the Saudis and, the, and all of that, and Israel standing up against it. You give it another couple of years. But this is one of the greatest indicators of Christ's coming, and it's our own government and its downfall and the way that it's, it's going. So that's why he tied this in. Not only does it, is it end the chapter right, but it forms that bridge for us to get us into uh, the next thing. And the next section we're going to talk about today is where he focuses on probably the most important thing in your life and my life as an individual Christian. You know, there's things that are important to us as a church. There's things that are important to us as, as individuals. And one of the things that probably is the most important aspect of your life as an individual will be your individual walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. When I talk with people, many times I, I deal with marital problems and, and the couples will come in who maybe I don't really know. 
and uh, somebody will refer them to me, and they'll come in and sit down. And when we begin to talk about their marriage and talk about their problems and where they're at, when I let it get, let them get it out of their system for a while, you know, and I begin to just let them vent a little bit because everybody usually is pent up and needs to get it out, then I come back and I always start my segment, or what I call my segment. I always start where I'm going with a simple question. And I said, you know what, let me ask you a question. And uh, it's a personal question, but, you know, for me to make a better assessment and evaluate where we're at here, let me ask you a personal question. May I ask you a personal question? And they'll say, yeah. And my question, I'll look at the man and I'll say this. Let me ask you something. Where are you at in your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And I'll let him tell me. He may, he may stumble around. Many, most of the time, they're 100% honest. I've never really think I had anybody try to sham me. They just basically tell me where they're at. Then I'll look to the lady and I'll say, Ma'am, I said, let me ask you a question. Where are you at in your own personal relationship with God? And you know what? That's the question. That is probably the single most important question in reference to the things that we looked at last week. Where are you and I at in our relationship as far as our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to define some things for you today, and you're going to get a lot of stuff out of this. Just because we've got two or three verses left, <laughs> by wait, no way, means that uh, there's not a lot of stuff in here. And you're going to see, we're going to pick it up where we stopped last week, and that is the first half of, uh, the last half of verse 12, and uh, it simply says this. Verse 12 says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. We talked about that. Now, the next part of that verse says this. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Now, the last part of verse 12 simply says that we're to cast off the works of darkness. If you do any kind of work with people in the Bible at any amount of time, you're going to find that you're going to bump into people who uh, are highly educated, most of them, and uh, because you have to get a higher education to get talked out of your Bible, and you're going to find a, a bunch of people out there that believe there's contradictions in the Bible. And you're going to find out that there's people out there who believe that there's simple, simply contradictions in the Word of God. Therefore, the Word of God cannot be trusted to the degree because it has contradictions in it. Uh, some of you students, as you get older in the Bible, you're going to have to get a hold of a couple of works. And uh, uh, those works are, are the books called Problem Texts. And in those books, they deal out and go through uh, all of the major contradictions and show you how that they don't, there are no really contradictions in the Bible as far as the skeptics concerned. Over the years, I found that probably there's about 2,000 of them. And at some point, you're going to have to go through those in your life if you're ever going to get a real handle on the Bible. I have them marked in my Bible with the references and the answers to uh, as I've come down and learned them through the process of growing in the Word of God. But at some point, if you're ever going to functionally be able to use the Bible and, and, and deal with it with people, uh, these questions are going to come up. I'd simply say that out of the 2,000 so-called contradictions, that probably 1,600 of them could be taken care of by just common sense. Uh, they're really not hard. Uh, but the other 400 may take a little while. I think out of that other 400, 20 of them could really be called difficult. And probably out of that 20, five or so could really be extremely difficult that you'd have to really spend some time. But at the end of the day, you're going to find out simply that there is no skeptical com uh, um, contradictions in the Bible as far as the skeptic's concerned. But at the same time, and I want you to listen to me now, 
there are some contradictive things in the Bible. There are no contradictions in the Bible, but there are some contradictive things in the Bible. Ah, and these are the ones you want to learn, and these are the ones that, by the way, make good preaching if you ever want to get to that point where you want to use them. Now, you take Jesus Christ. You want to see a contradiction? Now, you'll never get this contradiction from the, from, the, from the skeptics of the Bible because their whole goal is to discredit the Bible. So I'm going to show you a legitimate, absolutely contradiction in the Bible. And this makes a great sermon. You just start out like I just did, and then you, you bait them, and then you bring it back around, and then you show them what a real contradiction is. You want a contradiction in the Bible? I'll show you one. Hebrews chapter 12, verse, thir- verse 3. What a contradiction. You know what it says? It's talking about Christ. And here's what it says. It says, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You know what that's saying? It's saying, there's your first contradiction. There's the greatest contradiction in the Bible. You know what it says? It says it was the most contradictive thing in the world to equate my Jesus with sin. That goes against everything that you could ever imagine about God. How in the world could we take the perfect, holy, sinless Son of God and equate Him to sin? And that's why the verse says that, for consider Him that endured. He endured it. What did He endure? The contradiction that He was equated with sin for you and for me. There's your contradiction. That's the most contradictive thing in the world to equate Jesus Christ with sin. Why do you think at the crucifixion, the sun didn't shine, the stars didn't shine, it was darkness, the earthquakes, the hail, the rain, the whole physical world rejected the concept that the sinless Son of God was being equated with sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Wow, what a contradiction. The contradictive thing in this world. Oh, it isn't about Isaiah's age contradicting Chronicles and Kings. It isn't about, you know, uh, over here it says there was 4,000. Over here it says there was 400 and some scribe uh, made a zero mistake and didn't copy it right. We're not talking about that piddly stuff. You want a contradiction? I'll give you one. The most contradictive thing in this world was a sinless son of God being equated with my sin and your sin. Now, you want another one? I'll give you another one. There's another one in the Bible. And the other one here says, uh, uh, a child of God having the armor of light, but also having the works of darkness. You realize as a child of God, we can't have it both ways. Now, I don't know, I don't know anything about most of you today. Many, I mean, many of you I know pretty well. But, uh, uh, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I can't see in deep inside the recesses of your heart. But I know this. If you're saved here this morning, and I, I can't vouch for you, if you're saved here this morning, if you were saved here this morning, I want to tell you this. You're either in fellowship with God or you're out of fellowship with God. You're not kind of halfway in between. We as Christians like to be fence straddlers. We like to keep one foot where it's comfortable and then the other foot where maybe it's not comfortable so we can jump back and forth. You can't do that as a child of God. 
And sitting here this morning, the second contradictive thing is simply this. Somebody who has been saved and born into the newness of life and has the light of God and is told to put on the armor of God, but they still walk in the darkness. Jesus himself was puzzled with this. When he said in Mark chapter 6, verse 46, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I have several, but one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Mark chapter 6, verse 46. It's, it's so plain and it's so clear. Jesus himself said, and why call ye me Lord, Lord? He said, and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and then not do the things that I say? That's a contradiction. And I'm telling you, the two great contradictions in the Bible, the first one was equating him with sin, and the second one is, after you and I get saved, we're to walk in the light as he is in the light. There's a great verse in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 10 through 13. It says this, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Now, that's a good verse. You and I need to prove by our lives what is acceptable unto the Lord. And then it says in verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now, the thing that I want you to see here, and you got to read the verse, it doesn't say have no fellowship with the unfruitful unfruitful workers, the people. I have unsaved friends. I have unsaved friends that I, I don't spend a lot of time with, but I've learned in my life you got to have a balance. If you come to the point where, uh, if you come to the point where you shut all your unsaved friends out of your life, I mean, uh, you're never going to be able to be a witness. I have unsaved friends, but they understand who I am and where I stand. And I don't have any problem with them knowing that I'm a child of God and I'm a Christian. Somebody said one time, well, you know what? I'm afraid if I get saved and, and go back to my friends and be a real powerful Christian that, uh, that I'll have to give up all my friends. No, no, no. If you get saved to become a powerful Christian, they'll give you up. You won't have to give them up. Light and darkness never have gotten together. And it's a contradictive thing. To think that a child of God who has the armor of light could do the works of darkness. That's contradictive in the Bible. That's an absolute contradictive. You see, and you hear this, you know, people say, well, now you shouldn't judge. Judge not least to be judged. Oh, I beg to differ with you. The Bible says, he that is spiritual judgeth all things. See, I'm not judging people. I don't have a right to judge anybody. I'm as, I'm as rotten as you are. And I don't have a right to judge you anymore than you have a right to judge me. But you will. But we don't have a right to judge each other. But what we do have a right to judge is what other people do. To the stand of, I'm not going to be part of it. And the Bible says that he that is spiritual judges all things. You don't judge people, but you judge the things that people do in relationship to your walk with God. Your walk with God is the most important thing in this world. And if you're not walking with God this morning, then you're probably walking with somebody else. But you can't walk to do. The Bible says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos 3.3. You can't walk in light and do the works of darkness at the same time. That's contradictive. You can't do that. You can't do that. And then he goes on and he says this. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now, how do you reprove them? For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are them are done in secret. Ah, the secret things. 
Ah, the secret thing. The Bible says it's even a shame to talk about them. Then how do you approve them? How do you approve them? Look at the next verse. But all things that are approved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doeth make, uh, make manifest is light. You know what? Your very life and the way you live it, what you will listen to and what you won't listen to, the things that you will get involved in versus the things you will not get involved with is the very reproving to a world that wants, Christian world, that wants to walk in darkness. Your life ought to be reproving. He says, have no fellowship. Oh, that's the key word. After the ball game, we always go out to Jason's Deli. We think that's fellowship, and it is in a way. We all sit down, we all eat beyond our wildest dreams, and we all go home and have nightmares because we ate too much before we went to bed. Status quo. <laughs> and that is fellowship. But that's not the Bible fellowship that he's talking about. The Bible fellowship is defined for you in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Then fellowship with God, true biblical fellowship, is walking in the light, not in the darkness, nor with the children of God who do the works of darkness, and your life reproves them. Your life reproves them. Your life had to be such as a child of God that worldly Christians know better than to try to dump something on you. Your walk with God had to be so bright and so shining. You had to be in the light so much that darkness can't comprehend where you're at. And remember now, you don't go very far in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, and you find where the light and the darkness, they will never get along. You know why? Because they're contradictive. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. I'm telling you. Two great concepts for you and for me as our walk in the Bible. One of them here, the other one's over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. You want to walk with God? There's two things you've got to follow. Two great concepts right here. Over here in uh, first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, when you come down through that, you know what it says? It says, casting down. You've got to cast down. There's some things in your life to have a walk with God. You're going to have to cast them down. I mean, throw them down. Get them away from you. Take them off and cast them down. You know what it is? Imaginations. He lists it for you. Imagination. Every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, you and I are to cast down. Ah, then there's a second aspect found here in Romans. We're looking at it right now. Not only are you to cast down some things, but you're to cast off some things. See those two concepts? Not only are you to take your mind and your imagination and your heart and all of those things that will run you and ruin you and cast them down, but there's some things in your life you need to cast off. And that's the fellowship with the works of darkness. God's people will never get this. It'll never get it. They'll never get it. Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 17, and be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, we use that verse for why saved people should not marry unsaved people. 
And that's a verse that if you meet somebody who's, uh, you know, or somebody gets hooked up with somebody, guy or guy doesn't make any difference. And that person's unsaved, and the person that's saved is too stupid to see it and understand the concept and see the long-range damage of it. That verse is a good verse to sit down and talk to somebody. And you show them, you know what? The verse says that there's nothing in common here. We're talking about two worlds that will never get together. Why? Because when you come down through the passage, we're talking about light versus darkness. But it just ain't talking about marriage. It's talking to the things in your life and my life we have fellowship with. He says, be not unequally yoked. Yoke is, is putting together. Yoke is, you, yoke is, yes, you marrying somebody, but yoke is somebody going into business with somebody. Yoke is getting into some relationship with somebody. Yoke is joining some club or some organization. Yoke has a lot of things that it deals with. But it says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what? Here it comes. Fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness. And what communion, ah, there's our word that we use for the Lord's Supper. What does communion mean? It means to come together, a togetherness, commune. They all live together. Community, we all live together. And he says, what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord, what's a concord? Well, we know what a concourse is. A concourse is something that links you to something else. You go down to the plaza and go down to the train station. You know what you do if you want to go over where the shopping place is and the hotel is? You take the concourse. You take, the, you take up the steps, you walk up the ramp, you go up this thing, and there's a concord or a concourse that connects something together. And for light versus darkness, there is no togetherness. There is no concord. None at all. And here he says, and what concord hath Christ with Belial? That's an Old Testament name for the devil. Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Verse 16, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? You see, light and darkness can never get together. He says, what fellowship, what communion, what concord, what agreement? And the answer is, none whatsoever. You can't put the light of armor of light and then still do the works of darkness. It's contradictive to God for you and I in light to have fellowship with the works of darkness, no matter what it may be. All right, verse 12 again. Cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. See, you cast down the things that are, that are inside. You cast off the things that are outside. Now you've cast it off, you've got to put something on. Oh, you're going to learn a lot about your walk with God today. You've got to cast something off to put something on. And thinking you can walk with God when you still haven't cast it off? <laughs> you're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself. Cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Now the interesting word there is armor of light. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6, we know that we have the great chapter there in our spiritual warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness, and high places. Take unto you the whole armor of God that he may be to do it all to stand and stand in the evil day. And here therefore done all to stand. Stand therefore! And it goes down and says, have your loins girt about with truth. We know what that means. We know what that means. The strength of any believer is going to be in your loins. 
That's why when he talked about Abraham back there and he talked about the nation of Israel, long before it was ever a nation, you know what he said? He said, that nation's going to come out of your loins. That's a man's strength. That's a woman's strength. Any game, any sport you play, you play with your legs. And you pick up with your, you pick up with your legs, not your back. You do, it's the loins girt about with truth. And then he says, feet shod with a preparation of the gospel of peace. Right now, on whatever level you're on, in our men's group and our ladies' group, you're there for one reason. You're there to get your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You're preparing yourself to take the gospel where God wants you to go within this local New Testament structure. Then he says the shield of faith. What do you do with the shield of faith? You quench all the fiery darts. Because when you get into this ministry and you get into working and doing for God, the devil's going to throw those darts and they're fiery darts. You've got to have something to block them with. You know why it's called the shield of faith? I'll tell you why. Because if you're going to be in the ministry and you're going to do something in this church and you're going to help me accomplish what God has called me to do, I'm going to tell you something right now. You better understand why you believe what you believe and understand and fully believe what we're trying to do or you'll be out before you get in. If you ain't got faith in that book, if you don't have faith in this church, if you don't have faith in this program, you're you're never going to make it. You got to have a shield for that. And then the helmet of salvation. And I, I, I think the greatest picture of that is David and Goliath. David's an unsaved Philistine. David's a picture of you and me. And the unsaved Philistine wanted to fight David and destroy the armies of God. Made fun of him. Disdained him. Called him all kinds of names. Little David went right down to fight a 14, 16 foot giant. What a picture of that is of you and me going out the world tomorrow. Little podunk me going up against the world. Little podunk you going up against the system. But you know when David finally got him? David, David picked up five smooth stones. You know why he used stones? Because stones are a type of the picture of the Bible, a picture of the Word of God. You say, why did he pick five of them? Because Goliath had four brothers, and Jason to himself made five. If they wanted to make it a family fair, David was going to go five for five. He picked up five smooth stones. And when he let that stone go... You ought to study that armor that giant's got. He's got a, he's got a shield. He's got a spear. He's got, he's, got, he's got greaves. He's got everything he needs. But when he goes to fight David, he looks at little David. He laughs and makes fun of him. And he takes off part of his armor. And the mistake that he made is he popped off that helmet and said, I don't need this. And when he walked down there, David hit him right between the eyes. Boy, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Why? Because he had no helmet of salvation. You ain't saved, you ain't got a chance. Let me say it so you'll all understand it. It's biblical. You ain't saved, you ain't got a chance in hell. Notice how people like to say things? I love cussing as a Christian and getting away with it. <laughs> Somebody says, yeah, you ain't got a chance in hell to do that. You're right. You go through life without Christ and die without Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, you got no chance in hell when you get there. I'm telling you. The one saved world, they, they don't even know what they're talking about. They go around asking God to damn everything. You know why? Because at the end of their life, God is going to damn everything in their life. Then he talks about the sword of the Spirit. We know that's the, we know that's the, uh, we know that's the Word of God. Well, I'll tell you what, little Nikki, you, you, you hit it up last Thursday night on Bible study out of the book of Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 17. 
She asked a question when they're rebuilding the wall in Nehemiah. And they're building the wall in Nehemiah, which is a picture of you and I building our church. And she had a question. She says, I don't understand why it says that they only worked, did the work with one hand and the other hand they had a weapon. Did you ever try to build something with one hand? It takes two hands to build anything. Unless you're good at holding nails with your lips and hammering with your hammer. It takes two hands to do anything. But here in building the wall, which is the picture of the church, they choose to put, use one hand and then keep the other hand on the weapon. How in the world do you build anything with just one hand? And of course, the great picture there is you take your left hand and the person's next to your right hand and you work together as a team. So you have your hand here, his hand here, you do the work. That means you've got to be one, coordinated, in unity. And with the other hand, you both hold the weapon, the sword, picture of the Word of God. That's how you build a church. You get people to get one hand in, the other hand on the book. You can't build it right if you don't have the book because the book tells you how to deal and how to get through and how to deal with circumstances and situations and keeps you on task with what you're doing. You got to have the sword on one hand and then you put your other hand in. You find you somebody else who put their hand in. They got their hand on their sword. They got their other hand in here and together when everybody does that in the church, you build the wall. It's called a unity in the Bible. It's called oneness of mind, oneness of heart, oneness of spirit. Then he says, praying always. Then he says, breastplate of righteousness. He says, cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. You know, at the end of World War II, I got a lot of weird books. I bought a book 30 years ago, uh, two volumes. It was done by the U.S. Army Medical Corps that did ballistic studies on their soldiers and it was a whole with really graphic pictures I, I just bought it for the pictures but it showed every kind of wound that a soldier could get I mean there are some absolutely very graphic pictures in here of how guys got killed in combat but it comes up with an assessment and a threat rate of how what would kill somebody versus what wouldn't And the overall assessment led to what they started to do in Korea and then they do in Vietnam and now every police officer wears them and every guy in Iraq and Afghanistan, wherever he's in a world of trouble, they all wear them. You know what it was? It's called, they called them flak vests. And a flak vest was something you wore on in Vietnam that didn't stop a bullet, an AK-47, go right through it. But it, did, it proved through their study that most of the fatalities in combat were due to upper body penetration with shrapnel. So they gave you a 22-pound flak vest in a country that was 112 degrees on its best day. And uh, you wore that around all the time. So when a mortar round went off or a grenade went off or artillery went off, you had a better chance of surviving because that body armor would stop the fragmentation of coming in and doing damage to your vital part. You could survive a leg wound. You could survive a, an arm wound. But it's tough. You get shot in the head, a little tough going back to the aid station saying, hey, I got my head here blowed off. Could you put it back on for me? And there was a, there was a flak vest, was, a, was something that they used. Now they developed it. Now it's full body armor. Every police officer out there can take a, can take a, a, a high volume bullet right in his chest and it'll never, it'll never, it'll hurt him, but it won't kill him. Every combat soldier over there has a flak vest with different size plates in it that'll stop an AK round. Why? Because they realized that this was the vital. You know what the Bible, God realized for you and for me? 
he realized the greatest thing that you've got to protect. I gave you a little verse a couple of weeks ago out of Matthew, and it said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. The greatest thing you and I have to protect, the greatest, that's in Matthew 22, verse 37, the greatest thing you and I have to protect is our heart and our attitude of heart. So he gave you, he gave you a breastplate. He gave you a bulletproof vest that'll protect your vital organs and protect your heart if you put it on. But you got to cast it off before you can put it on. You got to cast it off before you can put it on. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, without a doubt, the hardest thing to do as a child of God is to love him with all of your heart, with all your mind, and all of your soul all of the time. But that's our job. And the only way you can do it is to protect your heart. And the only way you can protect your heart is understanding the concept of the breastplate of righteousness and casting down and casting off and then putting on the armor of light. Sin starts, always has, and always will. will start in the heart. Bible says in the book of Matthew that uh, he that lusts after a woman has already committed adultery in the heart. Bible says if you hate somebody, you're already in your heart, you're a murderer. You know why? Because sin starts in the heart. It's your heart you've got to protect. It's your heart where you're going to pride is going to come up. It's in your heart where envy is going to take over. It's in your heart where self-righteousness is going to reign in your life. That's where it starts. And the only way to stop it is with a breastplate of righteousness and putting on the armor of life. Do you ever study the two D's in the Bible? My way of remembering things. The devil and Daniel. Two D's in the Bible. About as contradictive as you could get. The devil, Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 17, the Bible says that when he wanted to overthrow God, when he wanted to bring rebellion against the things of God, when he wanted to stop God's plan, the Bible says that he was perfect all of his ways until iniquity was found in him. Where was that iniquity found? The Bible says in his heart he was lifted up. Your heart's the biggest problem you got. And I'm not talking about you getting heart disease and dying of a heart attack. I'm talking about spiritually. Then you have Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. Daniel was tempted with the world. Daniel was tempted, held captive by Babylon. Picture the world system. They wanted to give him everything and make him just like the world. They changed his name from the name that meant something for God to a name that meant something for the false gods of Babylon. They did everything in their power to get him to become like one of them. But the Bible says in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 that Daniel purposed in his heart. That's where your sin starts. That's where my sin starts. That's why you got to cast down the imagination and cast off and put something on. Verse 13 says, let us walk honestly. <laughs> wow, what a word. Erase that out of there. Well, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy. Now, there's some great stuff in here. And the first great concept that just kind of jumps out at me, he says simply this. Let us walk honestly as in the day. You know what that day is? That's the day Jesus Christ goes back. You know what he's saying? He's saying, he's saying right now in this life, we ought to walk before God just like we're going to walk before him when we get our glorified bodies. 
What a foreign concept. Let me ask you a question. Say tomorrow morning you get up and you go to work. You roll out of bed about 5.30, 6.30, whatever every time you get up. And you would stagger into the bathroom, you know, and you're going to take a shower and brush your teeth and get all ready to go to work, you know, and you get a shower, you know, and, and then you sit down there and you steam's all over the mirror and you start to, you know, shave or brush your teeth. And, of course, if you're ladies, you don't shave like guys do. But anyway, and you know, so in the mirror's all fogged up. you got the stuff on your face or you got your toothbrush in your mouth and you take your towel and you wipe that off and you're going to have a heart attack. Standing right behind you, here's the Lord Jesus. And he stands there and he says, hey, Bob, how you doing? And I said, well, I'm doing fine, Lord. What are you doing here today? He said, you know what? He said, I, I was reading my own Bible the other night and I read back there in Genesis chapter 5 where I walked with Enoch. And he said, you know what? It's been a long time since I walked with anybody. So I just thought I'd come down and, and spend a couple of days here with you. Oh, that's great. We would be excited about that for about the first 30 seconds till we realized what we really had planned today. And so you go down there and you, you just stand. He says, I'll be out of the way. I'll just be over here. Just going to enjoy my time with you. So you get ready from work and you're thinking about an alternative plan now, you know, and you, uh, you, uh, you, you say, well, come on, we'll go. And he's down there. He gets in the car beside you, you know, and he's just talking to you. And you're driving down the freeway and, and uh, you're trying to keep your thoughts really clean because, uh, you know, uh, you, how your mind wanders. But now he's sitting right next to you and the last thing you want to know is him looking over you and saying, you have something on your mind? <laughs> you, you know, you're driving. You know, you're working hard at it. About that time somebody cuts you off and you... You do what you almost always do, and you catch yourself and scratch your head, you know, and the Lord just looks, oh, he just smiles, you know. And um, he, he says, uh, so you go to work, you know, and you get into the little deal there, and the first thing you do is, oh, you're going to check your, your, your MySpace or MyFace or No Place or wherever that, and uh, you pop that up on there, and he says, my, my, those are some pretty nice pictures you have on there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I don't know who put those on there, Lord. I, I tell you, I really don't know those gals. I don't know where they even came from. I, I need to get them off. Somebody got into my computer and hacked into that thing, and he says, yes, I'm sure they did. Of course they did. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, what is this little thing down here you're saying about so-and-so? Oh, that's really good. Did you write that? No, I don't know who wrote that. I really don't. I don't know. Oh, okay. And then you go on with life, and, you know, you go through the day, and you go home, and you, you do all your trials and all your troubles, and you're over there, you know, down at the cafeteria at lunchtime, and your buddy comes over and says, hey, Bob! Let me tell you this one. You like the one yesterday? Let me tell you this one. Da 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 da. You're saying, oh, I really, I don't, I'm not. Yeah, the Lord standing right there. He said, No, I'd like to hear it. I really would. You know, I haven't heard any good jokes for a while. We don't do those up in heaven. I'd like to hear this. You know, oh no, Lord, you wouldn't want to do this. You wouldn't want to hear this. But that time you're going down there, you know, and you're going home, and your cell phone rings, and it's your favorite person on the other end, you know, and they say, Have you heard about so and so? And you say, Well, I can't. I'm really busy right now. My boop 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 boop. Boop, 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 boop. What's the matter? My battery's going dead. Boop, 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 boop. Boop, 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 boop. Click. Lord says, I just saw you charge that thing this point before you went to work. You must get a new battery. Here, let me fix that. No, no, Lord, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You know what? It'd be a pretty solemn thing if tomorrow morning we really saw him standing behind us. But you want to know how ludicrous that whole concept is? He goes with you everywhere you go tomorrow. He hears everything you hear. He says everything you write, he hears and sees everything you do, the aspect that he doesn't know and he doesn't see and he doesn't hear just because you can't see him, <laughs> my dear friend, we should walk now today just like we will before him at the judgment seat of Christ. That's why I'm trying to tell you, 
You know what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4? It talks about the process of spiritual growth. And in verse 15, here's what it says. It says that we, 415, it says we had to grow up not unto him. We had to grow up into him. You know what our prayer groups are about with all our three levels of helping you get in there and people work with you and help the older ones, help the younger ones that's bringing around? It's to help you grow up every day to be more like him. It's to help you understand exactly what he's saying here, that tomorrow you're going to be one day closer to your salvation of your body uh, than you were from the salvation of your soul. Every day you're going to be one day closer standing by him. And every day you and I ought to work at thinking more like, being more like, and doing more like he does until we grow up into him on that day. You know how you do that? But I'm going to show you how you do it here in a moment. I'm going to show you how to do it. We should walk now, today, just as we will before him. Now, let me ask you a question. A couple of Thursday nights ago, somebody asked a great question about the, about the 12 doctrinal uh, principles of salvation. And I told you, I said, you know what? Salvation sounds like such a simple thing, doesn't it? And to most people, it is. And the reason why most people have trouble with their salvation after they're saved or they doubt their salvation after they're saved or they have trouble believing they can be saved after they're saved if they do something wrong, uh, if they were truly saved, people struggle with things. And the reason why people do is because people don't understand what salvation is. And I gave you the 12 Bible principles on salvation that if you understand them, there's no way you could ever doubt your salvation. Or if you're not saved, there's no way you could ever think you were saved and then you'd really get saved and then you could really do something with your life. And I told you, salvation is such an easy term, born again. Well, I'm saved. Praise the Lord. Well, I got born again. Oh, amen. I got washed in the blood. Oh, that's great. Well, I, you know, I, I, I'm, well, I'm, I got a new name written down in glory. That's great. Well, I, I'm in a, what does all that mean to you tomorrow morning? And of course, there's more to it in salvation. Now, let's take our walk with God. That's an easy term too, isn't it? You hear me say it all the time. You hear everybody say it all the time. Walk with God. Walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship one with another. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, light unto my path. You walk in the path. Come on, let's walk now. Walking together. How can two walk together except they be agreed? You hear it all the time. But there's more to it than just a, a, a catchy little phrase, let's walk with God. And just like there's more to salvation about uh, your salvation, I'm going to give you 12 biblical principles on your walk with God. You want to walk with God? You want to have a walk with God? You want a real biblical walk with God? Well, then here they are. And if you don't have these or understand these, I got some bad news for you. You may think you're walking with God, but we like to define our own lives our own way, don't we? That's why we don't like the Bible. That's why we don't like hard preaching. That's why we don't like accountability and responsibility when it comes to anything in the Bible. It goes up against what we really think we are when we're really not. Twelve, twelve walks you want to study in the Bible as God's people. Great principles. Great principles. Now let me start by saying this. There's only three men in your Bible that the Bible says walk with God. I'd start with this. I study these men's lives. This will take you about nine years, and then you'll be ready to do something. There's three men in the Bible that the Bible specifically says they walk with God. And they do, they do that. The Bible did that because if you want to learn a walk with God, study these men's lives to start with. The first one is Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. That's Enoch. The second one is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Is of course, Noah. And then the third one in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 25 is David. Now, each one of them represent a different aspect of your relationship with God. I don't know if you know that or not. 
every one of those every one of those three guys represent something different, a different aspect of your Christian life. And I'm not preaching on them this morning, so I don't have to get time to get into them. But it's so easy to say, isn't it? All right, the first principle we're going to talk about in the concept of walk is what we're at right now. We'll start here and work around it. It says walk in light. Walk in light. First John chapter 1, verse 7, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. We're to walk in the light as he is in the light. In other words, this is where the contradictive come comes in. How do you walk in the light as he is in the light and still do some of the things, say some of the things, get involved in some of the things that the works of darkness do? That's the problem, see? So the first thing is, if you have a real biblical walk that you pretend you do, then you're truly going to walk in the light as he is in the light. Do I need to go down the list this morning of things that he would not do? I don't think I do. Walk in the light as he is in the light. The second one, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. You walk honestly. Now that's honest with yourself. Because everybody really sees who you really are, even though you don't. Remember the book last week, The Emperor's New Clothes? <laughs> well, everybody sees how spiritual you not when you're not honest with yourself and see how think you how spiritual you are. And it goes back to your walk. It's all it all goes right back to that. The third one is Romans chapter six, verse four. Walk in the newness of life. You know what that'll be? That'll be that what some of you people are teaching right now, the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. And understanding that. The next aspect of your walk will be Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. And that will be walk in the spirit. Wow. There's a whole concept to that. The next one will be found in Colossians chapter 2 verse 6. And it will be walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that later. The next one will be walk by faith in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7. The seventh one will be walk in good works. That's Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. The next one will be walking to, a walk to, a worthy of our vocation, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. You know what? I'm going to tell you something. Let me ask. Don't raise your hand. I wouldn't want you to embarrass yourself. What is your vocation? Don't, don't shout it out. Don't raise your hand. If you do, I'll make you leave the church. Don't. What is your vocation? You claim to have a walk with God. You claim to be walking with God. You got a billboard up back of your car and a blinking light and a bumper sticker that says, I walk with God. Really? Do you walk worthy of your vocation? Oh, yes, I do. What, what is your vocation? You don't even know. You don't even know, and then I'm supposed to believe you have a walk? I didn't write this. But if you're sitting here this morning, and you claim to have a walk with God, and that verse says in one of the 12 concepts, worthy of, walk, worthy of the vocation by which you are called, and you don't even know what that vocation is. I mean, I give you young Christians a free pass. You've been saved for, you know, 30 seconds. You're in. But I'll tell you what, man. And you're going to claim, you're going to tell me you have a walk? And I'm not going to tell you what it is. Your next one is walk in love. Ephesians 5.2. Your next one is walk circumspectly. Ephesians 5.15. You know what circumspectly is? That's carefully. Always watching. Walking circumspectly is that you, you, you're careful of where you're at. It goes back to what our thing was in here. One hand in the work, the other hand on the weapon. That's walking circumspectly. Make sure you do what you do. Make sure you, you handle your life the way it needs to handle based on the biblical principles, making decisions based on them. That's what it means. Walk circumspectly. And then the next one is walk worthy of the Lord, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. 
What does that mean? That goes back to what we studied earlier in our first lesson. Worthy of the Lord means the debt that you owe. A debt to unsaved people, to win them to Christ and not be ashamed of the gospel. The debt to each other, to love each other. That's what it's talking about. Are you still walking or did you fall out of rank? And then the last one is probably the greatest one. And that'll be Colossians chapter 4 verse 5 that puts it all together. Walk in wisdom. Twelve concepts of your walk with God. That if you can't lay them out, lay them out, put them out, put them down and run them through the Bible today, kid somebody else. Okay, kid? Sell it down the street. Sell it down the street. I preached too many Bibles for too many years. I know what it takes to make a young man or a young lady. I know what it takes to build a Christian. And I know these concepts have to be absolute. You can't have one set of rules for yourself and one set of rules for everybody else. We all play by the same rules or we don't play at all. It's that simple. And we like to talk about how spiritual we are. We like to pretend how spiritual we are. But the bottom line is this is where the rubber meets the road. Okay, I gave you 12 things that uh, areas that we as God's people should walk in. Now I'm going to give you six that we shouldn't walk in. Now it talks about rioting, drunkenness, chambering, wantonness, strife, and envy. Now this is where, uh, this is where your, your old 1828 Webster Dictionary comes in hand. Obviously, when the King James Bible came out and the fast editions, what, about 1778 uh, or something in that, of the edition, that it's the final edition. I didn't say revision, I said edition. Um, uh, from that point on, when the King James Bible was written, English language was at the apex of its purest form. We're now 400 years past that point, and the English language today is absolutely de- degenerated beyond belief. Uh, our, our language has got so trashy, and our language and our definitions of life and, and the value products have changed so much that nothing means anything anymore. I liken it like this. My favorite store is Walmart. I could live in Walmart. If I had a Walmart down to me, I didn't need, and I could walk to it, wouldn't need me to car. I'd get all my clothes. I'd get all my food. I'd get everything I need from Walmart. Walmart has everything. And uh, if you really get lucky and you catch them blue lights going off back there, you can get really hit it big. But think about this. Some night, tonight Walmart, clo- Walmart closes. I don't think they ever close, but let's say they closed. And this is why they don't close, because they're afraid somebody will come in and do this. So they close at 11 o'clock. 11.30, me and about four or five of you break in. And we're going to do something fun. We're going to change all the barcodes and all the stuff. And we're going to take us eight hours, and we're going to go through it. And we rearrange all the barred codes so the next morning when the store opens up and some lady comes in and she buys a color, 100-inch color screen plasma TV, she gets it for $1.49. And the lady comes over here and she buys a bag of diapers and she pays $1,447 for it. Your dog now costs you about $2,000 a month to feed. We did all the, what we did is we changed all the price tags. While everybody that worked at Walmart went home and slept got a good night's rest because of a hard day's work. We snuck in and we changed the prices. And now what was valued at $1,400 is now valued at $1.49, and what was valued at $1.49 is $1,400. You know what the devil's done while we've slept in planet Earth? He's come in and changed all the barcodes. And the things that used to mean something don't mean nothing anymore, have no value to them, and the things that are valueless now have great value to them. That's what's happened in a nutshell. That's exactly what's happened on planet Earth. 
That's exactly what you and I are up to. That's why if you want to find out, uh, if you want to find out some of the meanings of the words, you got to go back to when the language was its purest. And some people have a tough time with that, but then they probably stayed in the seventh grade longer than I did. Bottom line is, if you don't continually learning about your own language, and that's another thing, you most you realize that most Europeans, and I know they're decadent and they're off the wall and they're you know, all in hell and there's no religion over there and they're about as apostate and amoral as you can get. But you know what? You'd be hard pressed to find any European teenager that didn't speak at least two, maybe three languages. You realize that most American teenagers can't even speak their own native English. Now, you take the word rioting. We think of that. We think of the, of the race riots, see? We think of riot. We think of somebody pouring out into the streets, and like the riots in California over Rodney King, or when, uh, uh, you know, O.J. Simpson got off for murder. You know, they rioted. Uh, people think injustices are done. They go to the streets, and they peacefully riot, burn down buildings, and turn over cars, and do all those kind of things. And that's our mindset. But in the Bible term, rioting is, is, is very much what God's people get into all the time. It's basically causing an uproar. It's basically running to excess in anything that we do can be a riot. And in other words, anything that causes an uproar within the, within the concept of Christianity, God lives it out as a riot. And then look at drunkenness. See, we think booze, don't we? But yet when you go over to Revelation, John, would you go up and shoot that kid? Yeah. <laughs> Shoot him twice, make sure he does not get up. Nope. He's getting Jan's gun. I'm just kidding, John! <laughs> They're just sweet little kids, man. They're doing what they little kids do. Nothing wrong with them. Just listen for a minute and listen to John. John will yell at him. John will get you. Hmm. Now I think John's running with him. <laughs> <laughs> we think booze, don't we? See? But in the Bible, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 17, verse 2, that the whole world's drunk with religion, isn't it? See? Now, drunkenness in the Bible is anything that takes away from your reality and, and controls you and, and, and you become drunk to that it controls you. There's people in this world that are drunk on pornography. There's people that are drunk on, on, on booze, yes. There's people who are drunk on power. There's people who are drunk on, on all kinds of things. We, just, we look at the word drunkenness and we immediately associate it with booze, and it's not. Now look at the next one, chambering. Now chambering will be lewd living, immoral living. Chambering, chamber, bedchamber. See how it works? You must have a silencer on. I didn't hear any gunshot go off. But anyway, now look at the next one, wantonness. Now wantonness will be no respect for authority. Or no taking responsibility. Uh, we, we, in our own world today, this is called the, uh, uh, you know, situation ethics. If it feels good, do it. Do whatever you want without any responsibility to it. Now look at the next one, strife. See, now strife and envying are listed over there in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21 as works of the flesh, you see. What is strife? Strife is rivalry. Strife is competition to be better than somebody else, to surpass another. Uh, contention over superiority, see? Always being in the center of controversy, always coming to a place where wherever you do, you cause a problem. And then you have envying. What is envying? Envying is wanting someone, uh, what someone else has 
and you try to get it through hurting them or lessening their effectiveness to make yourself look better. I mean, that's, all of these things are defined in the Bible. And envy isn't just, well, I wish you had your new car. Envy is looking at another Christian and feeling because they're doing something that maybe you're not, that when you get in your little groups, you trash them, you see? You, you, and, and, and everybody sits around and says, oh, yeah. But what you're doing is holding up a big sign, I'm envious of that person. I'm envious of that person. And these are the things that you should not walk in. And I might add, based on our contradictions, you can't walk in these things and walk in the other. Verse 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Probably out of all the verses that I've given you this, today, this verse is probably the most significant verse to us as God's people. And when I talk about having the victory of God in your life and the victory in, in your walk with God and the victorious walk, this is basically sums it up right here. And we'll end with this today and, 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 and then we'll start chapter 14 or, uh, next week. But this verse is probably the most significant verse to us as God's people of ever having the victory in our lives that we need so desperately. And there's a couple of things here. The first thing I want you to see is it says, put ye on, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember earlier I told you in Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 that it talked about walk ye in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, I'd tell you that later. Well, here it says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of weight to that verse, and the average person would just read it and never think more about it, but I'm going to tell you something here. There's a reason why it's in the book of Colossians, and there's a reason why it says the Lord Jesus Christ. You take God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We know that they're all three one. We know them as the Trinity. We know that the Son is every much as God is God the Father, as is the Holy Spirit, all three in one. And, uh, you know, how's the old thing go? Uh, three is one and one is three. The one in the middle died for me. <laughs> you know, how the thing goes. But anyway, <clears throat> but <clears throat> they're all the same, but they're all different. You realize that God has an office, not an office like we got back here, but a job that he does. Jesus Christ, has, this God the Son, has a job that he fulfills. And the Holy Spirit of God has a job that he fulfills. You'll never understand God in his entirety and have really what you need to have in your life of understanding who he is do you understand all three of those offices? And in part of your growth process of coming through the Bible and learning the Bible should be simply this. What does God the Father mean in your world? What does God the Father mean in your world? If you had to open up your Bible and explain God the Father, could you do it? How about God the Son? Could you do it? How about the Holy Spirit of God? What's his job? What's his function? Could you lay it out? Well, then you got another problem because when it comes down where it says, walk ye in the Lord Jesus Christ, and here it says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's very evident that he picked those three names because every one of those three names, the Lord Jesus Christ, make up the complete title of who Christ is. And if you don't know who Jesus Christ is as Lord, if you don't know who Jesus is as Jesus, and you can't take the Bible and lay it out as who he is as the Christ, you're kidding yourself. Kidding yourself. I'm, this is an easy message, but it's a hard message. It's probably not a hard message. It's a reality message. But then we're going into chapter 14 and 15. So that's why he lays these things out. <clears throat> There's a reason why he just didn't say, put you on Jesus. 
There's a reason why he didn't say, put you on the Lord Jesus. There's a reason why he didn't put you, say, put you on Christ or the Lord Christ. There's a reason why he said, put you on the Lord Jesus Christ, because the complete name holds the secret for complete success. And you have to understand how that thing works. It's part of the process of growing spiritually. It's part of the process of getting saved, getting here on Thursday night, getting involved in what we get on, let somebody work with you, help you get plugged into the Bible, and, uh, and it goes from there. So he says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to draw your attention to the phrase, put him on. Put him on like he's a jacket or a coat. Ah, where does this take us? Oh, it takes us back in probably one of the greatest stories in all of the Bible in Genesis chapter 37 through 50 with a man by the name of Joseph and a story about Joseph's coat of many colors. Remember that story? If you've been in Sunday school at any time at all, somebody, somebody's told you the story of Noah's Ark, Daniel Lyons Den, you know, Abraham and, uh, you know, Isaac and all of that stuff. But down the line, I'm sure you heard the story of Joseph's coat of many colors. You know how it works? <clears throat> and there's a great picture over here. This is why it says you're to put on Christ like you're to put on a coat because that coat of many colors back there represents something. And you want to learn what it represents? Listen for the next four or five minutes and you'll have a better understanding of it even though I don't have time to get into it all today. But that coat of many colors is a picture of a Christian plugged into God with the blessings of God and the hand of God all over their life and in their ministry. I watch people in this very church and I would not tell you who you are because I don't want to cause a problem for you and make you stumble or give you a problem with pride or, or anything. But I'll tell you right now, I guarantee you right now, bottom line, I can see people coming up in this church that's got the coat on. And you don't even know it. Maybe you're not supposed to know it. It's my job to know it. But I see it. I see it. I see it. When you study the life of Joseph, and let me just tell you something. Joseph, when we talked about growing up into him, we talked about uh, uh, walking in the light as he is in the light. The study is Joseph. Joseph is the greatest type of Christ anywhere in your Bible. The life of Joseph is a life that mirrors what you and I are going to go through if you're going to have the victorious Christian life. And I want you to know, Joseph did not have a bed of roses. Joseph's life from beginning to end was full of strife. His life from beginning to end was full of heartache and problems and everything that went on and everything that he had to deal with. But you know what? The thing that got him through when nothing else would get him through is the fact that he always had that coat that his father gave him. Now, Jacob back there is a type of God the Father. You notice that there's 12 boys back there, 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. Joseph's the younger one. And Joseph is the younger one, and Joseph gets the coat. And Joseph got the coat because of the fact that he had a better relationship with his father uh, than the other boys did. The other boys were kind of grown up. They were doing their own thing. They had their mindset. You weren't going to teach them anything. They had, their, they, had their, they had their own stuff going for them, and they, they hung around with the dad because he was the, you know, the breadbasket, and they ate off of him. But they, they had their own plans. They know where they're going. Joseph wasn't like that. Joseph is exactly where you and I should be. Just a little 15 or 16-year-old kid staying close to father who just loves Jacob with everything that he has, and Jacob loves him. You know, the first time you find Joseph, he's out feeding the sheep. He took care of his father's sheep. Did you hear what I said? He took care of his father's sheep. That's what you and I ought to be doing. 
And he took fair of the father's sheep, and his father loved him, and he loved the father, and they had a better relationship with the other boys. So you know what, you know what, Joseph, you know what Jacob did? He had him a coat of many colors, the manifold blessings of God, all the colors of the rainbow, all the colors. Who does not walk into some place when a beautiful autumn when you go down to the Ozarks or you go out and west someplace uh, and it's autumn and the leaves are turning? And we, I mean, you go down in the summertime, it's all green. You go out in the wintertime, it's all brown. But when you go down in the fall, it just knocks your socks off with the colors. We're color-orientated. A lot of bright colors break things up. Why, they know that so well that when they do, you ain't going to believe this, but when they do studies on how to make gas stations or restaurants, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll put the color scheme because there's certain colors that'll make you eat faster and move out. Yeah. They do whole studies on them. Well, this color here will make person, uh, they even use them for bathrooms because they want you in and out so you can get back and, you know, and they, they, everywhere we are, people look at the thing and they say, well, colors will move people different ways. That's true. And in this case here, the Joseph's coat of many colors was a picture of the blessings of his father into his life of what him and his father had. And oh, my, 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 the blessings were good. The coat was neat. But his brethren hated it, didn't they? They were envious of it. You want to talk about envy and strife? Just study his brothers. You want to talk about envy and strife? Just go to any church in this city where God has got his hand on some young Christian's life and ministry, growing up and doing things, and there's other Christians out there that aren't doing anything, that think they are, and watch what they say about them. It's the same story. It's the same story. It's the same exact story all the way back there, Joseph's coat of many colors. Historically, Joseph is a picture of the foundation of the nation of Israel. Doctrinally, he's a type of Christ, but inspirationally, He's a picture of you and me. And he's a picture of you and I putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you get a new coat. But there's a price tag. His brethren hated him. They were jealous. They envied him. They made him do the work and they took the credit. They, they talked about him behind his back. They conspired to get rid of him. They devised a plan to destroy him. Uh, they decided to kill him. And then they finally sold him to the, uh, the, the Midianites when he makes his way down into Egypt. He goes through the trials of the end of Egypt. And his brethren are saying, boy, we got rid of him and his coat of many colors. But you know what? God is always the author of circumstances. And when it all came down to an end, his brethren had sold him and tried to get rid of him. God turned that whole situation around. They had to come to him to keep from starving to death. Because all through the trials and all through the thing, you know what? The thing that he had is what they never had is what they always wanted was that coat of many colors. I'll talk to you about a walk. I'll talk to you about a walk. That walk starts with you putting on the coat of many colors. It starts with you putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts with you coming to the place where you start to put those characteristics of Joseph in your life. And uh, you start to get the manifold blessings of God in your life. And yes, there'll be problems. And yes, there will be people who will backbite you. They will talk about you. They'll get in their little groups and they'll assassinate your character. They do it all the time. They've always done it from the very beginning of time. And they'll do it right up till Jesus Christ comes back. The great contradictive is, now you know, you cannot walk in the light and still have the works of darkness. Then the last part. Verse 14. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. Now the key word here is the word provision. 
Now, the word provision has two basic definitions in the Bible. The first one is making a way or providing a place for something to take place. Creating the circumstances, in our case here, for your flesh to get control. The second aspect is the word provision is our word for food. So in that case, it deals with feeding of your flesh. Now, there's a great example of this in the Bible, and I, I can't think of a, a better example of someone who uh, is a great, lays this thing out where you can understand it. And to me, that's the beauty of the Bible. I lay out hard concepts, and maybe you're saying, well, what does exactly that mean? Then I bring in an illustration, much like Joseph, and you say, oh, I see it now. Well, here's another one. And this will be found in the book of Judges, chapter 14 through chapter 16. And in our study on this particular case of uh, make no provision for the flesh, will be the man Samson. All of the principles so far that we have looked at lay out in this study and are found in his life. Rioting, drunkenness, chambering, wantonness, strife, envy. When you start, you know, when, when you first time you find Joseph, he's feeding the father's sheep. The first words out of Samson's mouth when he shows up is in 14.2. I've seen a woman. Get her for me. Okay. What a contrast. First time you find Joseph, he says, he's feeding the father's sheep. First time you find Samson, he's looking with his eyes, wanting something, and then ordering his parents to get it for him. He's motivated by the outward appearance and not the inner character, 14.7. Every woman he hooks up with is unclean as far as God's concerned. Finally, he gets an unclean Philistine and he joins himself to her. Dark work, 16.17, and they become, as we laid out, unweekly yoked. He's so busy fulfilling his personal lust and his desires and his ambitions, he never even knows the power of God went left him. If you would have walked up into him in one of his drunken orgy stupors with all the ladies he's hanging out with and all the people he's running around with inside the Philistines and making all kinds of deals, and you'd ask him if he walked with God, he would tell you that him and God were just like that. Because that's how it works. That's how it works. All of his life, he shows rebellion against all and any authority He's never held any accountability for his actions. He has had no responsibility. In all his life, he's in rebellion against, mark him down, his parents to the religious organization by which God is structuring it in the Old Testament for you and me to be the church, the Word of God, and even God himself. He reminds me of the type of kids that most of parents raise today that I find and you deal with them. You know what? Your kids are very good kids. Your kids are fine kids. Your kids are lovely kids. Right up to the point where you got to discipline them. You can get along with them every day long, all your day long, and they're just wonderful. Right up to the point where you got to deal with them on a biblical principle. A lot of God's people the same way. A lot of God's people the same way. They talk about loving God and loving this and loving that right up to the point when you got to deal with them. Now it says, make no provision for the flesh. Samson winds up like so many of God's people, a spiritual suicide. A couple of years ago, we started this. We never really got into it. It kind of went its way, and I just let it go because we'll get into it when we do biblical counseling. But I talked about why people commit suicide. 
And we talked about uh, understanding the basic concepts of why people commit suicide. Suicide's a terrible thing. But people do commit suicide. And obviously suicide is, is rampant in our country today, and there's a reason for that. But if you want to totally understand suicide, you've got to realize that in your Bible there's seven suicides in your Bible. But you also got to realize something that not every suicide in the Bible is a physical suicide because there's such a thing as spiritual suicide. And where an unsaved man can commit physical suicide, as can a child of God, a child of God can commit spiritual suicide. Samson's a picture of that. Samson's a picture of a person who was called by God to do a job, but he walks by sight and not by faith. He violates just about every principle that there is, and uh, he winds up a spiritual suicide. He violates the greatest principle that goes along with all these things and walking with God that's found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, where it simply says, give no place to the devil. As my old grandmother used to say, you give the devil an inch and he'll make himself the ruler. You want to study Samson's life? I'll give you three points, and it's a great outline. And then I'm going to give you some absolutely phenomenal principles for your own life. Three great things about Samson's life that fit right into your life and my life. The first thing is that Samson's sin blinded him. He couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. I dare so to say if you would have talked to Samson all his life, he'd have thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. You know why? Because when you get out of fellowship with God and you start mixing the two together, then your, your reasoning power, your perspective goes out and you lose everything and you don't even know. Like Samson, he didn't even know the power God had left him. He didn't even know. He didn't even know that where his strength was. He didn't know, and there's a reason why his hair is tied into seven locks, because it all ties together. And he didn't even know where his strength was. And what's even worse, when it finally left him, he didn't even know. You know why? Because he was blinded to it. He was asleep. You know the second thing sin did to him? You see, once sin has a progression in your life, and once sin blinds you, then sin binds you. And sin took over his life, and he had no longer in control. Sin will blind you, and then sin will bind you. And he's bound by the Philistines. Picture the world system. And here he is, the child of God, the deliverer of Israel, the one who God wanted to use to bring about the downfall of the, of the world and establish the nation of Israel just a short few hundred years later. And now here he is, the aristocracy of God, the joint heir with Jesus Christ. Picture you and me. A man who God called for a purpose, and he had a vow. Remember the vow? Just like he was separated from the vow. But that vow, we're going to talk about it in a moment, just like when you got saved, God separated you from the world. Where is he? The child of God. Where is he? He's blinded. They put his eyes out. You know, there's been God's people in my life over the years and seen them, you know, that were, they could see, had 20-20 vision. But somebody had put their eyes out spiritually. They couldn't see what really was there. He got blind, blinded. And then the next thing they did is they tied him up between two posts. And then his sin bound him. And he couldn't get out of it. He had lost the power. Listen to me. 
He lost the power of God to break the bands of this world that now took him prisoner. How? He got blinded. He got blind. He got bind. <laughs> he got blinded. <laughs> Sin blinds you. Sin binds you. And then sin grinds you. They tied him to a grist wheel. Big wheel, about 340 pounds, big round thing they used to ground weed on. And when they bound him to that deal, they stripped him naked. Picture the judgment seat of Christ, or what's coming. And when he pushed that grist mill around there for the rest of his life, he was providing food for the world. He was providing food for the world. Because he, in his early years, made the provision for his flesh. Now he's making provision for the world. They laughed at him. They laughed at him. They made fun of him. And for the rest of his life, until he died of spiritual suicide, he pushes that around. The aristocracy of heaven, the child of God, the man who God had a plan to deliver Israel is now bound by the world system and his rest of his life is just like most of God's people today. You know what it is? You just go around a little circle, don't you? With the burden of the grinding wheel. With the burden and the laughing at you and the whips to your back. The world that you thought was so fun, the world that you thought was going to be your heyday, the world that you thought was going to be all yours when you were 20 and 30, no, you got blinded and then you got bound up and now you're grinding it in a little circle in life. That's what people tell me when they come in. Bob, I got no purpose. Bob, I got no, no I don't know why I'm even alive. I, I, I go to work and I come home. There's nothing to it anymore. Nothing means anything. Yeah, you know why? Because you're bound to that wheel and you're grinding in a circle. Oh, now we got to see the best part. The best part. Bible says, make no provision for the flesh. We now divine that as making a way, providing a place for something to take place. We've also defined it as feeding something, food, provision. In Judges chapter 14, verse 5, we find an interesting addendum to this story. Now, Samson was a Nazarite, and he took a Nazarite vow. Now, let me just briefly explain that. In the Old Testament, when you had something that you were going to do for God, you took a Nazarite vow. And a Nazarite vow was a picture of what happened the day you and I got saved. We didn't take a Nazarite vow, but if you study the Old Testament Nazarite vow, it's a picture of what happened. Three things he couldn't do once he took a Nazarite vow. The first thing he couldn't do is he could not have anything to do with a vine tree. No grapes, no raisins, no raisin bran cereal, no prunes, no nothing. He couldn't have anything to do with anything off a vine tree. Couldn't touch them. No wine, no nothing. Completely. And of course, we know that goes back, to, we don't have time to get into it. We know it goes back to Genesis chapter 3 with the original curse. Second thing he couldn't do is he couldn't touch any dead people. No funerals. Picture of you and me staying away from unsaved people. See how it works? And the third thing he couldn't do is he could not get a haircut. 
and he had to, had to let his hair grow, and I'll give it to you now since we're here. And when he got that hair growing, he put that hair into seven locks because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit of God manifests itself in seven ways. So that's hair pictures, that stuff. When he got his hair cut, he lost the power. You know why? Because the power of you is in the Holy Spirit of God. And when the world takes it away from you, just like Deliah took his hair cut, you lose your power. Now, three things. Now, let me show you how this works. If you're a young man here and a young lady and you want to make something out of your life for God, I'm just telling you. It's not your choice. Life is choices. If you're somebody here and you want to make something out of your life, you better listen to the next 10 minutes of what I'm going to say because this is the key. This is the key. This is the key. He knows he's supposed to stay away from these things. And in 14.5, he's bebopping down the road, going out to his latest endeavor and encounter. And lo and behold, he takes a shortcut through the vineyards of Timnath. Now, he's supposed to stay away from anything off a vine tree. But this idiot decides to take a shortcut through the very place he's supposed to stay away from. And who does he meet in that vineyard? A young lion. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Your adversary goeth about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You know where he found a lion? Right where he wasn't supposed to be. Now somebody said, now wait a minute, Bob. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 says, Jesus Christ is also count, called a lion. How do you know this lion is not a picture of Christ? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus Christ never violates his own principles and doesn't go where he tells you to stay out of. You better write that down. Don't look at me like a tree full of owls. I'll put you on a branch someplace. I got a brand new cuckoo clock. If the cuckoo's dead in it, I'll put you in a little box with little windows on it. He killed the lion. Next day, he comes on the same route. And the lion's dead. He killed him. Carcass is laying there. But overnight, or in a couple of days, or how long it went, a bunch of bees came in. And they put honey in the carcass of this dead lion. Isn't it always amazing where the devil puts things that you got to go through Violating the principle. He wasn't allowed to touch a dead animal. Now, there's some other great principles here that I'll just throw out to you as we get down through this thing and move on through it here. Honey and a dead lion. You can't get the Word of God out of a dead church. This lion was dead. No life to it. And you can pretend all you want. You're going to grow and you're going to go to this, you know, first Baptist church or the refrigerator or whatever your case may be. And you think, well, my parents were here. We owned the pew. My dad put in the bathroom. We got all of these things. You know what? Take the bathroom with you. The principle is you can't get honey out of a dead lion without it violating you and wound up spiritual suicide. That's beside the point. I just threw that in. You don't have to pay for that. He kills the lion. The next day, he comes down through there. And when he finds the honey in the lion, he touches the lion. And boy, it's over at that point. 
And then he has to do three things. He has to author a male lamb, a female lamb, and he has to get a haircut. And God does not, he, he doesn't do any of those. He will not, in his own world, he knew what the Bible said. He just violated the Nazarite principle, and now he's just oblivious. No accountability, no responsibility. Oh, there's a different set of rules for him than everybody else. He was supposed to get a male lamb, a female lamb, and a ram, and then get a haircut. He didn't. He went on his merry way just like we do. And you know what? His father-in-law died in a fire. And God got his male lamb. A little bit later on, his wife gets killed. And there God got his, God got his female lamb. Delilah gave him his haircut. And now he's shackled between the pillars of a Philistine temple and they're making fun of him. And he looks up to God and he says, God, what have I done? What am I going to do? I can't be your deliverer. God says, yes, you can. No, God. No, God. I didn't get a haircut. The world gave it to me. I lost my father-in-law. I lost my wife. Here I am. How am I going to get a ram? And God says, I'll tell you how. You be the ram. Sin blinds you, it binds you, and it grinds you. If he would have stayed out of the places he knew he was not to go, the lion would have never been an issue. We have a boy that were several boys. And you can get the newsletter over there in the deal. John Busquette works with our, our prison ministry. And we've got a young man that we've probably been in uh, working with now for probably, oh, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years. His name is Rob. And Rob is an incredible character. Rob got saved. And Rob's the kind of guy that uh, Rob, uh, his whole life, he's been, I mean, he, he's probably in his 40, 45 years now. And I'd say probably... I'd say he's probably been incarcerated since he was 19 years old, in and out. Rob got out about 10 years ago. And we had been working with him via the stuff and phone calls and Bible studies and stuff in that we could get in. And, and he got out, went back to Joplin where he was from. I told Rob, I said, Rob, the first thing you got to do is you, I said, you're a two-timer. They hit you once. They got you, now they got you a second time, you got out this time. Next time, you're going to be in trouble. And I said, you need to find a church, you need to get someplace where you can be uh, in the Bible, and you get, you get up that lifestyle, and you get with the people and quit hanging out with the wrong crowd. Well, he didn't listen. He didn't listen. I get a phone call from his mother uh, one Monday morning. She basically says, Rob, is, Rob got, got arrested last night. He got into a situation, uh, the police picked him up, and when he went in and his parole officer come in, he lost his temper and he threatened the parole officer. And you know what he got out of it? You know what he got out of it? He got 25 years. 25 years. He's appealing it. He's been appealing it for 13, 14 years. They ain't ever going to let him out. They ain't ever going to let him out. They are never going to let him out. His mother said to me, what are you going to do? What can we do? What do you think, Bob? You know what I said? Here's what I said. Honest to God. You know what I think, ma'am? I think if he would have been in church last Sunday night, he wouldn't be in prison today. 
Don't go where you know you shouldn't go. The lion never becomes an issue until you go where you should not go. From that point in his life, it was over for Samson. What did he do? I'll tell you what he did. He gave place to the devil and he made provision. And he violated just about every biblical principle that you can. He made a place for the devil and a provision for his flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And sin did what always sin will do. Sin blinds you, it binds you, and then it grinds you. That doesn't mean that you can't turn your life around. It doesn't mean no matter how black, how bad, whatever it's been, you can't get out of it. But the bottom line is it's simply this. The longer you're bound, the longer you grind, and the blinder you become, the harder it is to break that circle of the old grist mill. My advice to do, break it today. Whatever it takes, break it today. That's my advice. We're going down to City Union Mission tonight. I can't think of a better place for you to take your kids. I love when your kids go down. I love when you go down. Because you want to see an example of exactly what I'm talking about, there it is. And if you're a smart parent, which I hope you are, you're obviously using that with your little children. You ought to pray for those men with those little kids. You ought to let them understand the greatest object lesson. Do not let it slip through your finger of what sin does in a person's life. Sin will blind your child, it will bind your child, and it will grind your child. What better, what better object lesson could you have than tonight at 6.30? Take them home. Create a prayer time with them. Pray with them. Pray over those men. Pray for those men to get delivered. But make them understand they're there because they gave place to the devil in all of their lives. Try to walk in the light and the darkness at the same time. And with all this, we now have the bridge. And we're ready to move to chapter 14 and 15. You now have everything you need to get on the right page. Whatever you've done, whatever you've said, whoever you've said it to, how whatever your attitude has been, you now have the wherewithal to fix it today and to move on from here to chapter 14 and 15. But it's up to you. It's up to you. You've learned 12 great personal principles. You should now know the time. You should need it's high time for you to wake. We ought to know that our salvation is nearer. We ought to know that the night is far spent, and we ought to know now that the day is at hand. We ought to know that these things are all inward. But then he gave us seven more that are outward. We are to cast off, and we are to cast down the works of darkness. We're to put on the armor of light. We're to walk honestly as in the day, with no strife, no envying, no riots, no wantonness. We're not to walk in the darkness of this world. We're to put on Christ and we're to make no provision for the flesh that we may fulfill the lust of this life and this flesh. You have everything you need. You have everything you need. You have everything you need in this bridge 
to get you to the place where you understand what New Testament Bible Christianity is all about. And if you don't do any other thing or get anything when you leave here today, I hope you leave with the aspect of you understand what a real walk is with God. Now, you look at things one way, I look at things another way. To me, it's no accident. He's the God of this world. No accident in March after a week of nice weather that he dumped seven inches of snow on us last night. You know why? He'd have blown this building down if he could have. He'd have killed me on the way home from chasing the deli last night if he couldn't. He'd have done anything in the world from here. God's people would hear this message this morning. You know what? Because this message will make a difference. You can walk out of here a new person, or you can walk out of here the same old person that you were when you came in. But it's up to you, folks. It's up to you. Father, we thank you.